Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3? If you're looking in the Pew Bible, it's the last book in the Bible. <clears throat> All the way at the end, we're studying through this verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We've been looking most recently at these letters that Jesus composes through John to these seven churches in Asia Minor. We're looking at uh, the church at Laodicea today, and this one is so, so significant that we'll study it not only this morning, but next week as well. We've noticed in each of these, uh, Jesus seems to know us. He knows not only the people in these respective places, but He knows us too, and we understand that from chapter 1. He works His way through all of the the lights in the candelabra pictured there in the first chapter. These are the churches themselves. He examines each one and he sees what it pleases him and what does not. He makes that known, he reminds them, exhorts them where they need to grow, where they need to change. Sometimes he has to threaten them. We found them to be very applicable to us as well. Yet, this one coming at the end of the passage, at the end of the series, and reflecting the, 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 same sort of, the same sort of strategy Jesus takes to each church, yet this one is more intense than all the others. He seems to gather up everything that He has addressed so far and puts His finger on all the sore spots of those churches He's already touched. It can be very convicting, and yet we've known, we know from the pattern of these letters that we've studied elsewhere that Jesus only does this because He loves us and He's leading us back to the Savior. So prepare yourself prayerfully in dependence on the Spirit to meet with the gospel in this passage, though He may convict us powerfully in the meantime. Verse 14, chapter 3, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth." For you say, I, I am rich, I have prospered, I, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. 
In the book about Michael Jordan's life driven from within, there is a story about Michael Jordan when he was playing for the Charlotte Bobcats. He went to the home of his friend and who was the president and COO of the Bobcats, Fred Whitfield, and they were going out somewhere. He needed a jacket. He'd forgotten to bring one. He asked Fred if he could borrow one. He said, of course, anything that's mine is yours. My, my closet is down the hall there. Just go in there and get whatever you want. Jordan made his way into Fred Whitfield's closet, and he noticed a closet full of Nike gear, which he was very pleased with because Nike was his sponsor. He was the face of of Nike, but he was very displeased with what else he found there, a lot of Puma gear as well. A man named Ralph Sampson, who had played for the Bobcats and who was a Puma representative, had been giving Fred Whitfield these clothes as well. Jordan took a Nike jacket, put it on, walked out into the living room, but also he picked up all of the Puma gear, all of the clothing in his arms and brought it back to the living room and he spread it out in front of Fred. Then he went back to the kitchen and he got a butcher knife. Maybe he looked at Fred with the butcher knife, but then he looked down at the clothing and he promptly shredded every last bit of Puma clothing. He said, Fred, we can't have this. We can't have this. It's Nike or nothing. You must not ride the fence. You cannot ride the fence. It's Nike or nothing. You can't ride the fence, Fred. All or nothing. This past week in the sports headlines, which I love to read and listen to, I was listening to the headlines and I heard this, that Davion Warren Warren has decommitted from the University of Memphis and his promise to Penny Hardaway, he has decommitted in order to explore other options. Decommitted. I like words. I pay attention to words. I couldn't remember learning decommit as a vocabulary word. When did that word make it into our English language? So being the word nerd that I am, I brought out my uh, Oxford English Dictionary, and uh, which traces the heritage of every English word. And admittedly, it only goes back to 11 or 1200. Uh, and comes up to 1986, and I didn't buy the supplement, but I didn't find decommit in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's come in more recently. Decommit. Now, I'm not beating up on Davion. You've decommit from one, uh, one deal for a, for a scholarship. Uh, he was a transfer from Hampton University to go to another. But decommit, this word decommit, and the concept of decommit is one that has found its way into our culture. And yet I'm not sure it's proper, the proper opposite of commit. I'm not sure it's, uh, it's the proper antonym. We don't say, for instance, uh, when we're lying in a puddle of blood, I think I may be unliving. I'm dying. The opposite of decommit is something else, especially in the, in the parlance, in the vocabulary of Jesus Christ. The opposite of committing to Christ, the opposite of obeying Christ is betrayal. It's to turn one's back. It's disobedience. It's any number of things, but it's not just decommit. 
committing. What does Jesus think about one who claims to be a Christian, calls themselves a Christ, call themselves Christians, those, those churches that call themselves Christian churches, and yet like this in Laodicea have decommitted to explore other options. They, they didn't want the persecution. They didn't want the difficulty. They didn't want the denial of the Christian life. They wanted to be accepted in social circles. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to flow flawlessly within and without of their culture and just have a little inspiration on Sunday morning. And Jesus says something is terribly wrong. He warns them. He speaks very tough news into their lives. He calls them names that are not very complimentary. He says, you are wretched and pitiful and poor, pitiful, poor and pathetic and blind, poor, naked and blind. You are, you, 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 are, you are the opposite of everything that you say you are pursuing. And in each of these things, wretched, pitiful, poor, naked, blind, all of these are the result of turning away from the Christ who is revealed to us in Scripture, who has been revealed to us already in these first three chapters. We've noticed that every time uh, Jesus writes one of, speaks to one of these churches, he, he mentions the attribute that they are neglecting or the attribute that they need. When they are afraid, he reminds them that he is a king. When they are disobedient, he reminds them that he is a judge. So if, he is, if these Christians at Laodicea are wretched and pitiful, what attribute of Jesus do they need to hear about, to be reminded of? What attribute of Jesus are they neglecting that has resulted in this condition? Well, the reason he says that they are wretched is because they have forgotten him and they're neglecting him as the amen, the amen and the beginning of creation. If you are experiencing a wretched state, it is also because you or we have neglected to remember, to practice that He is the amen. Oh, we don't use that word wretched very often, <clears throat> at least if we want to keep friends, but we know what it means. It means misery. To be wretched is to be miserable. It is the most severe of all unhappiness. Elsewhere, the Bible gives light to that word. It says when we cut ourselves off from Christ and His righteousness, we are miserable, Romans 3.16. When we yield to temptation, as in Romans 7.24, we are miserable. When we make friendship with the world, as in James 4.9, we are miserable. Why do we do any of these things? Why do we cut ourselves off? from depending on Christ's righteousness? Why do, we, why do we make friendship with the world? Why do we yield to temptation thinking that that indulgence is more attractive than Jesus? It's because we have forgotten that he is the amen. The amen, by saying he is the amen, he's identifying himself with God revealed in Isaiah 65. There I, God says, I am your amen, meaning I am the fulfillment of every promise I make. Every promise I make to you is like a check I am endorsing. 
It is like my guarantee for the currency I've invited you to spend. I am the guarantor of every promise that I make. I made a new friend a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the economy, and he said, uh, he said, uh, now, uh, now gold still backs up every dollar, doesn't it, in the United States? And I've said, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It hadn't been the case since about the 1960s, maybe 1970. What does back up the dollar? I said, I don't know. You know, uh, when, when nobody takes it anymore, you know it's no longer backed. It's really, that, that's very flimsy. That's right. Gold is no longer the standard, no longer the backing, the guarantor for a dollar bill. Well, Jesus is that guarantor. He is the gold behind the currency that God has given you to spend. He says in the New Testament, I am the yes, Jesus is the yes and amen for every promise. So every promise you read in Scripture, Jesus guarantees it. I am going to fulfill it. I guarantee it by my life and death and resurrection. But when we forget that, we become miserable and we make everybody else miserable around us. When we forget that Jesus is the guarantor of that promise that he is a sympathetic high priest, we no longer find sympathy in him or we, not, we are not sympathetic to other people. When we remember that the God of grace is the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies, when we forget that Jesus is the guarantor of that promise, then we lose comfort and we fail to comfort other people. When we forget that Jesus is the motivation and the empowerment of the righteousness that we're called to live. Then we live legalistically and we make him out to be a judge rather than an advocate to those around us. Jesus has an even more graphic description of what it means to be miserable in yourself and to the world. He says, not only will you be miserable in yourself, not only will you be miserable to your world, you will be miserable to me. In fact, you will make me vomit. Jesus said, I would rather you be hot or cold, not lukewarm. If you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, this text was taught to me something like this. Jesus wants you to be honest. He wants you to choose for him or against him. You're all in or nothing. You're committed or you're betrayer. There's nothing in between. So Jesus will respect you more if you're cold than if you're just lukewarm, trying to ride the fence, trying to keep a foot in both worlds. It really doesn't make sense that Jesus would say such a thing. Jesus would never say to us, I'd rather you, you know, I'm going to respect you. At least if you turn your back on me, well, at least I respect you for being a man or woman of your word. You never hear Jesus saying anything like that. We've learned in more recent decades with archaeological discovery more of, more clearly what Jesus is saying here. Laodicea is ancient uh, city in Turkey, and uh, just above it, towering above it, is the city of Denizli, the modern city of Denizli. And at that time, and, and uh, there were, it was believed, uh, 
therapeutic hot springs in, those, in that 300-foot rise above Laodicea in Denizli. Hot bubbling springs, and if you could make your way there, put your body in, it would heal it, heal those bodies of their ailments. Laodicea had no source of fresh water, so they, would, they, they figured out a way ingeniously to pipe that hot boiling water out of Denizli down to Laodicea. But by the time it came, it was lukewarm. It's full of calcium carbonate that coated the mountain behind, which makes for a beautiful scene in the mountains there as the sun strikes it in different angles. But it, uh, it became lukewarm by the time it ran down that 300-foot precipice down into Laodicea. They had to put that water into cisterns to cool before they could drink it, before it was potable. If you tried to drink it while it was lukewarm, well, it functioned as an emetic, which is the, the root word behind this, this action of spitting out here. It did function as an emetic. It would, it would cause you to throw up. It would make you throw up. But you, you, you have to let the water cool. It has to be cool before it, it, it can be drunk. I don't want you to be lukewarm that way. I don't want you to be miserable. I don't want you to make me nauseous. What I want for you is to be hot and therapeutic like those therapeutic streams or cool and cold like that fresh, cool water six miles north of here in Colossae. I want you to be cool and refreshing and life-giving. I want you to be therapeutic and helpful and healing. This is what I want you to be. I do not want you to be anything else. I don't want you to turn your back on any on me as the amen and try to pursue your own life under your own and your own direction. If you do, you will be miserable. You'll make people around you miserable, and you'll, may, you'll be nauseous to me. I want you, he could say in Old Testament language, to be shalom, to bring bringers of shalom. I don't, I don't want you to be mute with the good news, but open your mouth and share it boldly and win your neighbors to Christ. I don't want you to conserve your energy and try to, try to just take care of yourself. I want you to be willing to die for others, to say no to yourself. I, I don't want you to hoard the blessings I give to you. I want you to give them in abundance to others. I don't want you to be miserable. I want you to be joyful. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not only does he call them wretched, he calls them pitiable. You notice he says, you are pitiful. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, naked, and blind. Why are they pitiable? How does one become pitiful? It is to ignore the attribute of Jesus as the true and faithful witness. It's interesting, it's not accidental, that the word that we translate witness is the same word that we translate martyr. To be a witness is to be a martyr. To be a martyr is to be a witness. 
In fact, later in chapter 5, when we look at the Lamb who was slain and hear the angelic messengers and all those who have gone before us worshiping around the Lamb, saying, worthy is the Lamb who was martyred. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who has come to bear witness to the goodness, the good news of God's salvation. Give Himself as a sacrifice of atonement, that any should, who should uh, reach out to Him and embrace His righteousness will have that righteousness substituted for their own sin. And it was willing to bear true and faithful witness to that to the point that He was willing to die and seal it to us. What happens when you fail to believe that, you become selfish and cowardly, pitiful. Paul uses the same word elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 when he was talking about the, the, the transformation that should occur by living every day in the reality of the resurrection of Christ. There is nothing that should be too hard for us. There's nothing, nothing that should make us that should move us, that should shake our foundation, that should keep us for thriving for the Lord in view of the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead for our justification. If He's been raised from the dead, how can we not believe every promise that He has given us? If He's been raised from the dead, how should we ever compromise? If He's been raised from the dead, how should we ever think that He's not being good to us just because life is not going the way we want it. Quite the contrary. When we're convinced that He is raised, has been raised from the dead, Paul says we're more than conquerors. But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are of all people to be pitied. Well, we're not to be pitied. We're never to live pitifully, pitiably, because Jesus has been raised to seal these promises to us. And it does not matter what meets our eyes. It doesn't matter what circumstances we're in. It doesn't matter what persecution or martyrdom faces us. In view of Jesus' resurrection, we can never believe anything but that God is good and proven to be good and our loving Father in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We are willing then to be those martyrs. Those, those early apostles were called witnesses or martyrs. And if we look around this sanctuary, the seals of the, of the apostles, most of them tell us how they died. Most all of them died, shed their blood to seal to us the certainty of the gospel they preached, to seal to us the, the reliability of the scriptures they wrote for us. Only John didn't die as a martyr because they couldn't kill him. They tried to boil him alive. They tried to make him recant. None of them ever recanted. Those martyrs pass on that witness through the Scriptures to the elders of the church. See, you are blessed with wonderful elders and deacons in this, in this church who care deeply for your souls. In fact, they've been giving a lot of time and energy lately to figure out how they can be even better shepherds to you. But I want you to know, I want you to know, it's never, I've never found an exception to this, uh, to this truth that anyone truly called to be an elder in a local church, improving it over time, everyone suffers 
and suffers intensely. Not because God hates them, not because God is disciplining them, not because they're so bad, but because He loves you so much, He wants you to know that these who are handing you the body and the blood, the representative bread and cup, and are commending it to you and saying, hang on, keep going, persevere. These are the ones who are saying it to you in spite of their intense suffering. And you in turn are to say to the world, my suffering is not accidental. I don't have a clear explanation for it. Now I know that I'm, I'm living in fellowship with him, so this can't be that he is disciplining me, but there must be this purpose to it, to prove that the gospel is true. That no matter what comes against me, the heat and fires of persecution, difficulties in life, loss, death, disappointment, I nevertheless confess, even from the dust, God loves me and has proven it to me in Jesus Christ. You can't make me compromise. You can't, you can't uh, lure me away with materialism. You can't, you can't entice me to dally with the world. You can't intimidate me. You can't threaten by taking away my job or my social uh, respectability. You can't. Because I know Jesus is the faithful and true witness, one who was martyred, one who shed his blood to seal the certainty of that to me and to guarantee that should I persevere as he promises in this passage, he will greet me with the well done, good and faithful servant. It is Jesus who, as in this passage, is knocking at the door of your heart this morning. He's knocking at the door of your heart asking, what do you love more than me? I love you. That's why, that's why I am leaning into your life. That's why I am reproving and disciplining you. He says, I want you to be zealous and repent, open that door that I might come in and have fellowship with you. I don't want you to be miserable. I don't want you to be pitiful. I want you to be joyful. I want you to be courageous. Open the door of your heart. For the first time, bowing the knee of your heart, reaching out and receiving the free offer of my salvation. For the thousandth time. You've heard it many times, but now you're, you're compromising with the world. You don't want to stand out. You're afraid of what you'll lose. You're allowing the world to dictate your anger or your opinions or because you want to fit in, because you want your own comfort. Jesus knocks at the door. He says, you'll never find it there. In so doing, Jesus is alluding to an Old Testament passage in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon is written by David's son, Solomon, <clears throat> author of Proverbs as well. And Solomon is writing about married love, the promises that, that God can restore marriage even though it's been affected by the fall. It's a rich love poem. 
But because marriage is also a, a mysterious image of, of, of the gospel, then it's, it stands to reason that the Bible would reach back to it for images of the way Christ loves us and the way we should love him back. So in chapter 5, there is this, this interchange between Solomon and his beloved bride. Solomon's staying up a little later that night, and his bride wants to go to bed early. She had to go across the courtyard and go into the, into the bed chamber. And when she did, she latched the door behind her. Solomon finally gets ready to go to bed, and he walks across the courtyard. Now it's starting to rain a little bit, the Middle Eastern version of it. And uh, he's getting wet outside, and he taps on the door. It's latched. And uh, she says, uh, I don't want to get up and I'll open the door. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I've got my pajamas on. I'm comfortable here in bed. I, I don't want to open the door. My darling, my fair dove, please open the door. He goes on and knocks. You may not believe me. Look at it. The Song of Solomon, chapter 5. It's what's going on. Please let me in, my darling. No, I don't want to get up. I've washed my feet. I'm warm, tucked into bed. I'm not going to get up and open the door. Somehow or another, he pushes the door open a little bit, a little crack in the door, and he starts fumbling around trying to unlatch the door. Something about that action changed his bride's mind. Maybe, as she thinks, you know, if I make the king mad, he has a bunch of other wives, maybe. He'll eventually get them. He could kill me, get another one. Maybe I should open the door. She jumps up, opens the door, and he's not there. He's gone. She's remorseful. She runs everywhere looking for him. She runs through the streets, very unwise, streets late at night, and, uh, and uh, men of the city kidnap her, beat her, take advantage of her. And she survives that trauma. They let her loose, and then she goes looking for her for her her husband, and, and she describes him to, to the lady friends she has around town, and they, we haven't seen him. What does he look like? She describes him physically, but then comes to the end and says, he is my beloved. He is my friend. It is this Jesus who is knocking at the door of your heart. This Jesus who is the amen, the beginning of creation, the one who has been raised from the dead, who could kick down the door of your heart if he wanted to. But he comes knocking, saying, I want to dine with you that you might be joyful and fulfilled. What stands between you and opening that door to a kind Savior, kind now, a judge in the future, let nothing come to him. Come to the waters. Don't try to make yourself better. Come to the waters and say, Jesus, I've turned my back on you. I've, uh, I've ignored you. Come to the waters and he will make you alive. He will grant you repentance and kick down all the other doors of your heart as well. Let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, help us to obey the gospel by believing on the Lord Jesus that we might be saved in our households, in our neighborhoods as well as we commend a beautiful, loving, friendly Christ to them. Oh, Lord, help us to do it before it is too late, before the Lamb becomes wrathful on His throne. Please bring us ever so tenderly to Yourself right now. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.